Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This is a WTOP original podcast. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Vladimir Karamurza is a Russian political activist, journalist, author, and filmmaker. He's a protege of Boris Nemtsov. He was arrested by the Russian government last year on bogus charges that he was trying to overthrow the government or something like that. He was also poisoned twice. 2015 and 2017. He survived, but now he's taken an unfortunate turn. Uh, his health condition is definitely deteriorating and uh, he's uh, developed the same sim- symptoms he had after the 2015 poisoning. His wife, Evgenia Karamurza, joins us to talk about it. Then, we'll hear from Vladimir Karamurza himself from two and a half years ago a prophetic look at what's happened in Russia and the situation he's in again. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. We've told you the story of Vladimir Karamurza several times. In fact, he appeared once on this podcast. He was poisoned twice by the Russian government, he says. And last year he was arrested again, and this time charged with treason. He's on trial now, but his wife... Evkenia told us last week he's not doing well. His health is starting to take a turn for the worst. This is our conversation with her. Evkenia, thank you for taking some time to talk with us. Um, I want to get right to it. There have been some new developments involving your husband, Vladimir Karamurza, who is in custody in Russia. And um, I understand that, you know, he's, he's ill right now. He's got a pretty serious illness happening right now. How is he? What's going on with him? Uh, His health condition is definitely deteriorating and uh, he's uh, developed the same symptoms he had after the 2015 poisoning, after the first poisoning, um, when he had peripheral nerve damage and lost feeling in his foot and his uh, hand. Um, he then went through intense uh, physical therapy and uh, was still um, and still had to walk with a cane for almost a year uh, because his uh, um, foot and uh, hand um, still had some numbness. 
and I believe that the conditions in which he is now being held at this uh, pretrial detention center and his recent, uh, let's say, stay at the um, in solitary confinement in in a disciplinary cell um, were enough for these symptoms to come back because he survived two poisonings and uh, now it it seems like his body doesn't um, doesn't need much. Uh, for some of the um, uh, some of the after effects of the two poisonings to come back and uh, yeah so th this is uh, what is um, happening we don't know uh, because we made all this noise after learning about his condition the prison authorities were forced uh, to allow a visit uh, by the doctor so he was seen by a neurologist in pretrial detention, and she diagnosed him with uh, polyneuropathy. So basically the same uh, thing uh, that he experienced in 2015 after the first poisoning, but now it's uh, his two feet that are affected. Very sorry to hear that. Um, so he's facing 24 years in prison for these so-called high treason charges just briefly, would you remind us how that happened? Uh, he was detained uh, last April, and the initial charge, and there have been uh, so far three criminal cases initiated against him. So the initial charge was brought against him uh, in late April for spreading so-called fake news about the use of Russian armed forces on the territory of Ukraine for a speech that he made at the Arizona State Legislature uh, when he denounced uh, war crimes committed by the Russian army on the territory of Ukraine and called for a creation of an international tribunal to prosecute all those responsible for these war crimes and for the crime of aggression against Ukraine. A second charge was added during the summer months while he was already in detention. Uh, that charge uh, was um, for... Um, cooperating with an undesirable organization to hold an event in support of political prisoners at Moscow's Sakharov Center in October 2021. Um, he was accused of cooperating with um, the, uh, the the Free Russia Foundation, uh, which I represent. It's an NGO that promotes uh, democracy and human rights in Russia. And uh, um, this organization uh, um, has indeed been declared undesirable by the Russian authorities as have since both the Sakharov Center and Memorial, because anything to do with human rights in Russia, of course, nowadays is uh, undesirable. And the third charge came in October, and that was uh, the accusation of high treason based on three public speeches that he made at the US Congress, at the Norwegian Helsinki Committee, and uh, at NATO. He spoke about total censorship of the media in Russia, he spoke about political persecution and the growing number of political prisoners in Russia. And he talked about the illegal character of the so-called constitutional referendum that allowed Vladimir Putin to make himself into basically a czar. I've got a couple of here. I want to ask you about um, your efforts now. I know you've been working very hard all along to try to win his release and freedom. Where, where do your efforts stand right now? Um, you know, I I believe um, several months ago when we first spoke, I told you that my um, 
goal was to continue my husband's work because his work on behalf of Russian civil society, on behalf of political prisoners in Russia cannot stop now when the situation is becoming increasingly uh, uh, dreadful. Um, and this is still my goal. Um, I believe that my main goal is to make sure that all the voices that the Russian regime is trying to silence nowadays, all the voices of dissent in Russia, need to be heard worldwide. The free world has to see and acknowledge the fight of those brave Russians who, despite all odds, stand up and oppose the Putin regime. And this is exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make sure that their voices are heard. Is there anything that I haven't asked you so far in this short interview, and I apologize for it being so short, but is there anything I haven't asked you that you think is important that you want to share before we go? Uh, well, I think I can say that although my husband's came, case seems absolutely mind-boggling, it is very illustrative of the situation with human rights in Russia, and this is something that has to be completely clear. Um, Vladimir Putin leads two wars at the same time. Uh, he tries to basically erase Ukraine from the face of Earth, and of course he will not succeed. He's already lost this war on so many levels. Uh, but he's also leading a war against Russian civil society. He's trying to eliminate, to eradicate all uh, dissent within society, and he tries to uh, eradicate all opposition to his regime. And um, many of my colleagues and I myself, and even Vladimir, from behind bars, we're going to be doing everything we can to prevent him from succeeding in that. Evhenia, Adamurza, thank you. Um, you're always so graceful and always so calm about all of this. And I appreciate you uh, coming, spending a little time with us. We will try again to talk to you soon and perhaps a lot longer uh, the next time. But we know you're busy. We know you have many things to do and a family as well. So thank you for taking time to talk to us about this very serious matter. Thank you very much for having me. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Now, I want to take you back to September 30th of 2020. I had a conversation with Vladimir Karamurza, and he talked about, among other things, his poisonings, the motives of the Russian government, the tactics that they use to eliminate opposition, and sadly, the state of affairs in Russia, which hasn't improved one bit since then. Vladimir, one of the things that is most remarkable about your life is that you have survived two attempts to poison you by Russian intelligence or Russian operatives. I'd like to talk to you a bit about that today. And the first thing I'd like to ask you is, what can you tell us? What do you remember from that first poisoning? Well, actually, both times were remarkably similar. So presumably they've used uh, the same or at least a similar type of toxin. Uh, both times this was in Moscow. Uh, the first time in May of 2015, the second time in February uh, of 2017. 
Uh, both times I was with other people. Otherwise, I would not be sitting here and speaking with you because this this happened so quickly with the onset of symptoms that the incapacitation comes really fast. So I was saved, among other things, by the fact that there were people with me who were able to call the ambulance straight away. But the, the way the symptoms began, both times, the first uh, sort of uh, instance was uh, inability to breathe. And I have to tell you, it is very frightening not to be able to breathe. Yes. Uh, when you're trying to you know, make that movement that all of us human beings make every few seconds to take in the air and you feel that no air is coming in, you feel that you're suffocating and then the heart begins to race uh, and I began to vomit violently and sweat all over the place. And, and this happens really quickly within minutes I was on the floor not being able to move. And uh, while, while I was still conscious, uh, while I was still conscious, this was excruciatingly painful to experience. I think that's actually one of the reasons uh, the Kremlin and its security services like this method so much, because uh, uh, it is a sadistic method. Uh, it inflicts suffering, among other things. Um, then I lost my consciousness. I went into a coma. Both times I was in a coma with a multiple organ failure, uh, and both times uh, doctors told my wife that I had about a 5% chance uh, to live. Mm -hmm. So no words can express how grateful I feel to be able to well, sit here and speak with you now. Uh, the official diagnosis given to me uh, in the Moscow hospital was, and I quote, toxic effect by an unidentified substance, end of quote, uh, which, you know, translated from medical jargon into plain human language uh, means poisoning, and they do not know with what. Yeah. And nobody believed that. They didn't believe it either because they knew it wasn't true. I'm certain of it. But um, so... You survived both of these uh, situations, and you have continued to do the work that you're doing, which is remarkable. You have seen the situation with Alexander, uh, sorry, with uh, Alexei Navalny take place twice as well. Yeah. Your organization is out front trying to demand that an investigation take place. Was there an investigation in your situation? No, and there still isn't one to this day. So both times uh, after the poisonings, after both poisonings, my lawyer and I uh, went to the investigative committee in Moscow, which is the Russian equivalent of, of the FBI, so the main law enforcement agency, uh, to request a criminal investigation into attempted murder. Uh, to this day, I have not yet received a response, which is actually uh, uh, astonishing for anybody who knows Russian bureaucracy, because of course we do not have rule of law in Russia, but we do have a very ornate bureaucratic system. And you know, to any request uh, you make, uh, you do receive uh, sometimes a very lengthy and complex written response. I mean, most often it would be meaningless, but it would be something put on paper. And in my case, uh, it was nothing, and it is nothing to this day. Um, I cannot say I'm surprised by the fact that while uh, the Putin regime was in power, the Russian uh, law enforcement agencies are not investigating attacks on opposition leaders. Look, five and a half years ago, in February of 2015, Russian opposition leader and former Deputy Prime Minister Boris Nemtsov was literally gunned down yes. in front of the Kremlin wall. This was the most high-profile political assassination in the modern history of Russia. And to this day, beyond the lowest level of the hired guns, the perpetrators, nobody, nobody among the organizers or masterminds has faced any responsibility, has been brought to justice, and all these people continue to be shielded and protected on the highest levels of the Russian government. So I was not, I cannot say that I'm surprised by the fact that the Russian 
investigative committee uh, did not even pretend to investigate uh, two of my poisonings. I am surprised, however, uh, by the behavior of the US Justice Department, uh, because uh, after the second poisoning in February of 2017, my wife managed to get a, a blood sample uh, and she took it to uh, Washington, to the FBI, for testing at the FBI's uh, toxicology lab in Quantico, Virginia, which is supposed to be among the top toxicological labs in the world. Uh, they took the sample, uh, they tested it, maybe or presumably found something, and then they classified the results. Uh, they refused to release them to me. Uh, I'll remind you, we're talking about my own blood test results. They refused to release them to me. They refused to release them to members of Congress, including the late Senator John McCain, who had requested them. Uh, they refused to release them to media organizations that tried to get them through the Freedom of Information Act. And so um, earlier this year, uh, I had no other choice uh, but to uh, file a lawsuit against uh, the United States Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., through my American lawyer, uh, Stephen Rademacher, whom I am deeply grateful to and really fortunate uh, for having worked on my case completely pro bono. He took it on as a public service because he's as outraged as anybody by this. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we received the first batch of uh, the documents, about 240 pages out of the 1,500. But the most important part of this, the actual lab test results, uh, which I needed in the first place, will be withheld by the Department of Justice until November the 16th. Of course, I'm hoping that then they will have to turn them over. The difference, I sort of drew this uh, line of comparison, which I do not like doing. I never usually compare anything that happens in democracies like the United States and what happens in authoritarian regimes, such as Vladimir Putin's regime in Russia. So, uh, uh, but, but this sort of compares the two situations. But of course, the big difference is that unlike in Vladimir Putin's Russia, the United States of America has an independent and genuine judicial system. And so because of the lawsuit, uh, I will eventually get this information. But I must say that I'm, that I'm absolutely astonished uh, and, 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 and to be frank, uh, lost as to yeah. why the United States Department of Justice would want to withhold this information. Well, I can tell you, Mr. Karamuza, that one of the things that's taking place in this country at this very moment is a collective scratching of the heads uh, over this situation, because this is not something that the U.S. is known for. It's not something that people are used to. But the exact scenario that you have laid out is is underway. There are questions about our government and questions about how it's working. And organizations within this government that have responsibilities have uh, been questioned about why they haven't fulfilled them or why they have taken a certain tact in terms of dealing with what's going on. And, you know, one of the things that hasn't happened here is nobody's been able to get to the bottom of why this is taking place at this point, just as you have not been able to get to the bottom of, I believe, the poisonings in your case. Did you, were you able to track down or figure out who poisoned you? Well, in the sort of large sense of your question, I never had any doubt who poisoned me. I have absolutely no doubt that both yeah, but of these I, I poisonings mean, I mean the uh, were intended to kill uh, and that they were both uh, uh, directed uh, from the current Russian authorities and then they were uh, perpetrated by people connected to the Russian security services because as we know, this particular method, the poisoning with some sophisticated uh, and powerful toxins, I mean, it's not some stuff you can go and buy in a pharmacy or in a market. It's only something that government operatives have access to. And we know that the, the Soviet and later Russian security services have used this method going back decades. Yeah. Um, 
but and no- I think in particular, actually, to, sorry, to continue answering this, I think, uh, uh, so, so this was obviously retribution for my work in the, in the Russian anti-Putin opposition, but I think more specifically, this was retribution for my long-time involvement in the international campaign for accountability uh, for human rights abuses in the form of targeted sanctions that are being implemented in Western democracies. I've had the honor to uh, to work together with uh, Boris Nemtsov, the late Russian opposition leader, to help convince the United States Congress uh, a decade ago now to pass the Magnitsky Act, which was the law that imposed targeted sanctions in the form of visa bans and asset freezes against Putin regime officials complicit in human rights abuses. Since then, this law has been made global, so it now applies to human rights violators, whichever country they may come from. Six countries, uh, as of this moment, have passed uh, the Magnitsky legislation. Uh, and two weeks ago, I was uh, in Berlin uh, to join members of the German Bundestag for the announcement of an introduction of a draft Magnitsky law in the German parliament. So uh, this process is continuing. I think this is uh, a very powerful and very effective tool of accountability for human rights abusers. Uh, Boris Nemtsov called the Magnitsky Act the most pro-Russian law ever passed in a foreign country because it is the law that goes after individually goes after the people who abuse the rights of Russian citizens and who steal the money of Russian taxpayers. Right. Uh, I'm proud to be involved in this work, but of course, right. if you are somebody who's sitting in the Kremlin today, uh, if you form part of the closest circle of Vladimir Putin, whose whole raison d'etre is to steal in Russia and then go and spend that money in the West, because we know that all their bank accounts are in the West, their second homes are in the West, their wives and mistresses are in the West, and so on and so forth. There is nothing that they hate or fear more uh, than these targeted uh, Western sanctions. So I have absolutely no doubt that both uh, of the poisonings uh, that I was subjected to uh, were a retribution for my work on the Magnitsky sanctions. Okay. Now, looking at uh, the Navalny situation, do you see any differences between what happened to him, what we know about what happened to him? I actually see some striking similarities. And to be honest, I relived this horrible groundhog day, as it were, when 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 it was announced that he was poisoned on, on the 20th of August uh, on a plane from Siberia, because the, the symptoms from what I could see and read, uh, as they were reported, were strikingly similar to, to what I had experienced. And then the whole medical picture with the coma and the partial organ failure and all the rest of it, and the way that he is recovering, thankfully he is recovering, thankfully he has survived just as I have. It's gonna be a long and difficult road to recovery. I mentioned that one of the reasons I think the Kremlin likes this method, method so much, the poisoning method, is because it's sadistic, because it's excruciatingly painful and frightening to have to live through this. And if you're fortunate enough to survive, as both I and Alexei Navalny have been, it then takes a long time and a lot of effort to get back to some sort of normal. I mean, I had to learn to walk again, literally, after the first poisoning, because when, when you're in a coma for such a long time, your body loses almost all of its strength. And then, of course, there are some lasting health effects for the rest of one's life. The second reason I think the Kremlin likes this method, this method so much is because they think it gives them plausible deniability. Uh, just look, every time something like this happens, every time another political opponent or independent journalist or anti-corruption activist or defector or whoever else is subjected uh, to a mysterious poisoning, um, Kremlin spokespeople, you know, shrug their shoulders and say, why are you blaming us? You know, who knows? Maybe they ate something wrong or they drank too much or, or whatever it is. And they start throwing out these 
crazy alternative theories, you know, to try to, to muddy the waters, to give a hundred different explanations in the hope that the truth yeah. will be lost. And this is why it's so important to pierce through yes. that plausible deniability. This is why I really need those test results yeah. out of the U.S. Justice Department. And I hope to be able to get them thanks to this lawsuit. So do you, why if this method, I mean, this is, there are three people that I know of that have survived, four these poisonings and two of you have survived a collective number of four times so why do they keep using this method if they if they wanted to kill you do you think they would not do what they did with uh, mr nemsoft or there are those who who suggest that these navichucks and other exotic poisonings are sending messages what's your view on that well there's absolutely no doubt that all of these poisonings uh are intended to kill. In some cases, they succeed, in others, they don't. I mean, you, you mentioned some of the cases, uh, including, uh, fortunately for me, my own, where we have survived. I can I can give you many more where people have not survived. You know, Yuri Shekhachikhin, oh. a Russian opposition lawmaker, an investigative journalist who died a horrible death in the summer of 2003 uh, in Moscow as a result of some mysterious and very strong uh, poisoning. Alexander Litvinenko in London in 2006, the yeah. former Russian security service operative who, who was poisoned with uh, polonium-210. And there are many, many, many other cases. Um, yes, in some, some, some of these cases, thankfully, they do not succeed. Uh, you ask, why don't they always do it uh, as they did it with Boris Nemtsov? And again, the answer is, for them, plausible deniability. There is and there cannot be any plausible deniability with Boris Nemtsov, the individual who was actually convicted by a Russian court for having pulled the trigger yes. uh, in the assassination of Boris Nemtsov was a serving agent of the Russian state at the time of the murder. He was an officer in the interior ministry and he took his orders directly from the Kremlin appointed uh, head of uh, the Chechen Republic, Ramzan Kadyrov. So, I mean, the line of responsibility is obvious to everyone. And uh, earlier this year, there was an oversight report into the Nemtsov assassination uh, prepared and published by the Parliamentary Assembly of the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, yes. of which both Russia and the United States are full members. It's a very important oversight organization. It's the world's largest uh, regional security organization, incidentally, 57 member states. They've prepared and published this oversight report into the Nemtsov case. And uh, it's it's actually available online on the OSC website. You can, if you Google OSC Nemtsov report, you'll see it. I mean, it has everything in it. It has witness testimony showing exactly when, where, and how Vladimir Putin gave the order for the assassination of Boris Nemtsov. It contains a very clear conclusion on behalf of the OSCE that the reason for the continuing impunity for the people who have organized and carried out this murder is not the lack of professionalism by Russian security services, but the lack of political will by the Russian government, which is a damning indictment. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's why they prefer to use poisons, because every time someone is poisoned, they pretend that they have nothing to do with this, that they cannot do this in the case of Boris Nemtsov, because everything is obvious and everything is transparent. That's Vladimir Karamurza in a conversation we had in uh, September of 2020, two and a half years ago or so. And he is in a really difficult situation right now, as well as many, many other people who opposed the Kremlin and what Russia, the government, is doing. Our prayers are out there for him and Alexei Navalny and others because they really are in a very difficult situation right now. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode. 
The Washington field office of the FBI has a lot of responsibilities, but some are more important than others. There are some things unique to Washington, D.C. that I'm concerned with all of the time. David Sundberg, the new assistant director in charge, says terrorism is near the top of the list. The District of Columbia being the seat of the federal government is a symbolic target. With lots of places terrorists can target to make their point. Using violence in furtherance of their beliefs. WFO, as they're known, is also concerned about espionage and Russia and China. China in particular. Those are two of the biggest efforts that we have. But there's much more on their plate, and we'll take a deep look at it. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast.